I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, um, the, uh, the, the reason, just to expand on that, it, it's not... Um, I, I said I didn't want to submit a manuscript until we'd finished rehearsal because the, uh, in my previous experience the manuscript, the text alters a great deal in rehearsals and I'd much rather wait and, and get the uh, authentic text. So it, I think it'll be out in about three weeks' time. But I thought what I would do um, would be to read uh, some of the introduction to the, to the text um, uh, w- uh, which uh, isn't really, uh, which is accessible. To, I mean, I imagine most people won't have seen the play, um, and this is much more um, autobiographical um, introduction. Um, and then, um, and then uh, I could take questions, but not obviously not just about uh, about the play. Um, I've generally done well in examinations and not been intimidated by them. Back in 1948, when I took my O-levels, or school certificates as they were then called, I was made fun of by the other boys in my class because on the morning of the first paper I turned up in a suit. It was my only suit and already too small, but to wear it didn't seem silly to me then as I thought the examination was an occasion and that I must rise to it accordingly. Ten years or so later, I took my finals at Oxford and dressed up again. This time, though, nobody laughed, as we were all dressed up, in the suit, white tie, mortarboard and gown that were then obligatory for the occasion. This was, I suppose, the last and most significant examination in my life, and it was in this examination that I cheated, just as I had cheated a few years before to get the scholarship that took me to Oxford in the first place. I was not dishonest, I kept to the rules and didn't crib, and nobody else would have called it cheating then or now, but it has always seemed so to me, false pretenses anyway. I was educated at Leeds Modern School, a state school which in the 1940s and early 1950s regularly sent boys on to Leeds University, but seldom to Oxford or Cambridge. I don't recall the sixth form in my year being considered outstandingly clever, but in 1951, for the first time, the headmaster, who'd been at Cambridge himself, 
made an effort to push some of his university entrants towards the older universities. Snobbery was part of it, I imagine, and by the same token, he switched the school from playing soccer to rugger, though since I avoided both, this had little impact on me. <laughs> However, there were about eight of us went up for the examinations, and we all managed to get in, and some even to be awarded scholarships. Though that's a situation which seems to mirror that of the history boys, the play has nothing to do with my contemporaries, only a couple of whom were historians anyway. But it does draw on some of the pains and the excitement of working for a scholarship at a time when Oxford and Cambridge were as daunting and mysterious to me as to any of the boys in the play. The first hurdle, more uh, intimidating to me than any examination, was having to go up to Cambridge and stay in the college for the weekend. I had seldom been away from home and was not equipped for travel. I fancy a sponge bag had to be bought, but since at 17 I still didn't shave, there wasn't much to go in it. My mother probably invested in some better pyjamas for me, but that was it. A stock vision of undergraduates then, gleaned from movies like Robert Taylor in A Yank at Oxford, was of a young man in dressing gown and slippers, a towel round his neck, en route for the distant baths. I didn't run to a dressing gown and slippers either. Nobody'll mind if you just wear your raincoat, my mother reassuringly said. I wasn't reassured, but there was a, a limit to what my parents could afford. It all seems absurd now, but not then. For all I knew, someone who went to the baths in a raincoat and his ordinary shoes might not be the sort of undergraduate the college was looking for. And droll though these misgivings seem, they were more real than any worries about the examination itself, and they persisted long after examinations were over. My social and class self-consciousness not entirely shed until long after my, my education proper was finished. December 1951 was sunny but bitterly cold, and though there was no snow, the cam was frozen and the lawns and quadrangles white with frost. Coming to it from the soot and grime of the West Riding, I thought I had never seen or imagined a place of such beauty. And even today the only place that has enchanted me as much as Cambridge did then is Venice. It was out of term, the university had gone down, and apart from candidates like myself who'd come up for the examination, there was nobody about. But then that was true of most English country towns in the early 1950s, when tourism was not yet an option. I walked through King's, past Clare, Trinity Hall and Quays, and then through the back gate of Trinity and out into Trinity Great Court, and thought that this was how all cities should be. Nothing disconcerted this wandering boy, and I even managed to find the smell of old dinner that clung to the screen's passage in the college halls, somehow romantic and redolent of the past. And in those days one could just wander at will, go into any chapel or library, so that long after dusk I was still patrolling this enchanted place. Starve for antiquity, Hector says of himself in the play, and that was certainly true of me. Gothic, rather than Gothic, Sydney Sussex, the college of my choice, wasn't quite to my taste in buildings, but I was realistic about what I was entitled to expect both architecturally and academically, and, with Balliol the exception, 
The nastier a college looked, the lower seemed to be its social and academic status. You had to be cleverer than I was, or from higher up the social scale, to have the real pick of the architecture. It was unnerving to be interviewed by dons who had actually written books one had read. What surprised me, though, was the geniality of everyone and their kindness. But if the dons were genial, some of my fellow candidates were less so. That weekend was the first time I'd ever come across public schoolboys in the mass, and I was appalled. They were loud, self-confident, and all seemed to know one another, shouting down the table to prove it, while also being shockingly greedy. I'd always found eating in public a nervous business, the way one was supposed to eat like the way one was supposed to speak, a delicate area. I'd only just learned, for instance, the polite way when finishing your soup was to tip the plate away from you. I soon realised that this careful manoeuvre was not a refinement that was going to take me very far. Not in this company, anyway. Unabashed by the imposing surroundings in which they found themselves, or, another first for me, being waited on by men, these boys hogged the bread, they slurped the soup, and bolted whatever was put on their plates with medieval abandon. Public school they might be, but they were louts. Seated at long refectory tables, the walls hung with armorial escutcheons and the mellow portraits of Tudor and Stuart grandees. Neat, timorous and genteel, we grammar school boys were the interlopers. These slobs, as they seemed to me to be, the party in possession. Like Scripps, a boy in the play, on Sunday morning I went to communion in the college chapel, and in the same self-serving frame of mind, though in those days I would go to communion every Sunday anyway, and sometimes midweek too. Asked in the interview what I was intending to do with my life, I think I probably said I planned to take holy orders. This was true, though I'm glad none of the dons thought to probe the nature of my faith, or they would have found it pretty shallow. And cliché too, which scripts his faith is not, besides being far more detached and sceptical than mine ever managed to be. On the foggy way home I changed trains at Doncaster, where in a junk shop I bought my mother a little Rowlandson print of Dr. Syntax pursued by bees. It was seven and six, and is probably not worth much more now, but it still hangs in the passage at home in Yorkshire as a reminder of that weekend. A few days later I got a letter offering me a place at Sydney Sussex after I'd done my two years national service. It didn't work out like that, but at the time it all seemed very satisfactory. I was going to Cambridge. National service was the first time I began to mix with boys who were much cleverer than I was and who'd been better taught, all of us having ended up learning Russian at the Joint Services School. This, delightfully, was based at Cambridge, and while we officer cadets didn't quite lead the lives of undergraduates, service discipline was kept to a minimum in order to facilitate our Slavonic studies. We did not have to wear uniform or take part in parades, and in lots of ways it was a more easeful and idyllic existence than I was eventually to find university proper. It was a heady atmosphere. Many of the others on the course were disconcertingly clever, particularly I remember a group of boys from Christ's Hospital, boys who'd school, whose schools had been a world, as mine never was, and when they talked of their school days there was often in the background 
a master whose teaching had been memorable and about whom they told anecdotes and whose sayings they remembered. Teachers, I remember thinking bitterly, who had presumably played a part in getting, the, getting them the scholarships most of them had at Oxford and Cambridge. To me, this just seemed unfair. I had never had a spellbinding teacher like this and had had to make my own way, which may be one of the reasons why I've been prompted to write such a teacher now. As the months passed, I began to feel that since I could hold my own with these boys in Russian, maybe I ought to have another shot at getting a scholarship myself. Besides, I was at Cambridge already. Perhaps rather than come back there after national service, I would be better, more rounded, I fear I thought of it, as going to Oxford. This first occurred to me in October 1953, and having written off for the prospectuses, I found I could take the scholarship, shop, the scholarship examination at Exeter College, Oxford, in the following January. There was no practical advantage to getting a scholarship. It carried more prestige, certainly, but no more money. At Oxford, scholars wore a longer gown than commoners and had an extra year in college rather than in digs. But that apart, I wanted a scholarship out of sheer vanity. Or not quite. I had fallen for one of my colleagues with a passion as hopeless and unrequited as Posner's is for Dakin in the play. This boy was going to Oxford on a scholarship, so naturally, or unnaturally as it was then, I wanted to do the same, and with some silly notion again like Posner, that if I did manage to get a scholarship, he would think more of me in consequence. Such illusions, and the disillusions that ine inevitably came with them, were, I see now, as significant as any examinations I did or did not take, and a token that underneath my formal education a more useful course of instruction was meanwhile in process. If I was to take the examination at Exeter, I didn't have much time. My history was rusty, and studying Russian during the day meant that the only time I had to myself was in the evenings, which I generally spent in the Cambridge Public Library. In the meantime, I reduced everything I knew to a set of notes with answers to possible questions and odd eye-catching quotations, all written out on a series of 40 or 50 correspondence cards, <coughs> a handful of which I carried in my pocket wherever I went. I learnt them in class while ostensibly doing Russian, on the bus coming into Cambridge in the mornings, and in any odd moment that presented itself. When I went on Christmas leave just before the examination, I happened to find in Leeds Reference Library a complete set of Horizon, Cyril Connolly's wartime magazine which had ceased publication only a year or two before, but of which I'd never heard. It opened my eyes to all sorts of cultural developments like existentialism, which were then current and fashionable. I didn't understand them altogether, but these two got reduced to minced morsels on my cards in order to serve as fodder for the general paper. Come the examination, everything tumbled out, facts, quotations, all the stuff I'd laboriously committed to memory over the previous three months. My only problem, lack of time. At the interview I still said, as I'd said at Cambridge, that I would probably end up taking holy orders though in view of the existentialism I'd spewed out, it seemed increasingly unlikely. <laughs> when the letter came saying I'd won a scholarship, I thought life was never going to be quite the same again, 
though it soon was of course. The object of my affections was predictably unimpressed and after my initial joy and surprise I began to feel that the whole exercise had been a con on my part. I was a promising something maybe but certainly it wasn't a scholar. Cut to three years later when I'm two terms away from my final examinations in history. I hadn't had a notable university career either socially or academically and I'd never had the same sense of life opening out as I'd had in the army. Now it was nearly over. I'd no idea what I wanted to do, just as once I'd thought to become a vicar for no better reason than that I looked like one, so now it occurred to me I might become a don on the same principle. But to do that I had to perform much better in finals than I or my tutors expected me to do. Whatever had seemed unusual or promising about me when I'd been given a scholarship had long since worn off. I was a safe, plodding second. I knew it, and the college knew it too. It was then that I remembered how I'd got the scholarship three years before. And as I began to cram for finals, I adopted the same technique, reducing everything I knew to fit on cards, which I carried everywhere just as I'd done before. There were more cards this time, but the contents were much the same. Handy arguments, quotations, an examination kit, in fact. I also twigged what somebody ought to have taught me but never had, namely that there was a journalistic side to answering an examination question, that going for the wrong end of the stick was more attention-grabbing than a less unconventional approach, however balanced. But nobody had ever tutored me in examination techniques or conceded that such techniques existed. This omission I, susp I suspect to be put down to sheer snobbery, or the notion in the play ascribed to Hector that any such considerations were practically indecent. What we were supposed to be doing in the final schools was writing dry scholarly answers to academic questions. It's Mrs. Lintott's method, Mrs. Lintott is another teacher in the play. With at Oxford, a model answer often compared to a Times leader. In my case, there wasn't much hope of that, the alternative being journalism of a lowlier sort. The question argued in brisk generalities, flavoured with sufficient facts and quotations to engage the examiner's interest and disguise my basic ignorance. This is the Irwin method. Irwin is a, a young master in the play. Once I'd got into the way of turning a question on its head in the way Irwin describes, I began to get pleasure out of the technique itself, much as Dakin does in the play, sketching out skeleton answers to all sorts of questions, and using the same facts, for instance, to argue opposite points of view, all seasoned with a wide variety of references and quotations. I knew it wasn't scholarship, and in the final honours schools it would only take me so far, but it was my only hope. I duly took the examination in scorching weather, two three-hour papers a day and the most gruelling five days of my life. At the finish I had no idea how I had done and was so exhausted I didn't care and went to the cinema every afternoon for a week. The results came out about six weeks later, after a Viva Voce examination. In those days everyone was vibrant coming before the examining board even if it was only for half a minute with a longer viber meaning that you were on the edge of a class and so likely to go up or down. 
Mine lasted half an hour and went, I thought, badly. I could see a couple of the examiners were on my side and endeavouring to be kind. The others weren't interested. I went back home to Leeds in low spirits. A friend who was in Oxford when the list went up sent me a postcard. It came on Monday morning when I was working at Tetley's Brewery in Leeds, rolling barrels. My father was ill and out of work and he and my mother brought this card to the lodge at the brewery gates where I was sent for from the cellars. They weren't sure what a first was. Does it mean you've come top? asked my mother. Not particularly surprised as from their point of view that's what I'd always done ever since elementary school. I went back to pushing the barrels around hardly able to believe my luck. It was one of the great days of my life. But it was luck. I was right, I hadn't done well in the Viber, but another candidate had, and with approximately the same results as mine, had been put up in the first class, so I had to be included too. It was a narrow squeak. So the history, boys, is in some sense an outcome of these two crucial examinations, and the play both a confession and an expiation. I've no nostalgia for my Oxford days at all, and I'm happy never to have to sit an examination again. In playwriting there are no examinations, unless, that is, you count the viva voce the audience puts the actors through every night. I wasn't in the footlights. I was, I was, you see, I didn't go to Cambridge, I went to Oxford in the end. No, I, I, I uh, it's, a, it's, it's partly with having this confusing educational history but also with being associated with Jonathan Miller and Peter Cook who were in the footlights but um, Dudley Moore and I were, um, were at Oxford and uh, I, did, I did no acting until I, I, I was um, a postgraduate and, and was thought uh, I, I, it was thought rather sort of beneath one's dignity to do it but I did it. I, did, I didn't do any straight acting, I just to do cabaret and, and, and uh, comedy and such like but th that was all after I'd taken my degree so it was quite late really and in the nick of time also. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, yes, no, I did always did my own material, yes I did. Uh, I, I, what happened was I uh, at Exeter, the college I was at, um, it was quite a inward-looking college, and didn't really take, wasn't really, didn't take much part in the life of the university in a way. But it was very uh, cosy, and they used to have, um, and the ju the junior common room was a very strong institution there, and used to have uh, concerts at the end of every term, and uh, and these concerts were quite drunken and and. Uh, um, and smutty affairs really, the humour was wouldn't bear examination really. Uh, and uh, and so I started doing sketches and, and the turns for that and that's where I first did the sermon which I eventually did in Beyond the Fringe. Um, and so uh, I, I never really, uh, it was only in 1959 I think that I actually was, had anything to do with any uh, university based um, drama group when I went to uh, to the fringe of the Edinburgh Festival with a review and it was that I think which led to being in the in Beyond the Fringe the following year which was an official review to do with the festival 
but it's always seemed to me, uh, I mean, slightly like the schools, I, I just got into things by the skin of my teeth, really. You, you, uh, there's a lot in the play about um, history rattling over the points where you can go either way. And uh, and it's always seemed to me that I, I had some very lucky chances, really. Uh, well, I, I, I did uh, teach history uh, br briefly. I, um, my, um, my supervisor uh, was a great historian called Bruce McFarlane, who's a medieval historian. And, um, and he gave me pupils from, he was at Magdalen, and I, uh, he gave me pupils uh, from Magdalen and sent them to me, um, partly because it helped out with the money, really. Um, and um, and then I was uh, uh, a junior lecturer at Magdalen, which is the lowest of the low, really. It was just a formal way of, of uh, recognising you did outside teaching for the college. And then I did a bit for Exeter, but I was a I wasn't a good teacher, but I did I did teach my pupils um, what I had to learn for myself, namely uh, the the techniques of passing examinations, which it seemed to me was uh, quite an important thing to learn. Um, and I found when I was uh, when I'd written the play, um, I I found uh, one of my old reading lists uh, with with. Uh, with some hints, as it were, on how to pass examinations on it, and I, my Bruce, my uh, my supervisor, either he saw this once and was very shocked by it, because <laughs> that wasn't his way of going about it at all. Uh, anyway, when when did I fe start feeling it really mattered? Um, well, I think probably long after I'd left university. Really, I mean, uh, I I. I, I, I was very ill-read uh, um, at university. It seemed to me I never finished a book, really. But partly because you had so much to do, and and, and I, I just found I never I never had leisure in you know to to uh, to to read all of a book even when I wanted to do. Um, and so that really only came in middle age, really. Except that uh, I I some in the play. Um, one of the master, the the charismatic schoolmaster, uh, tells the boys that they they should know a, a book or just one book, uh, any book, really well. It doesn't really matter what it is. That they should actually uh, there should be something uh, in, in the instances um, of the um, I can't remember my own play and I've, I've <laughs> seen it. And, uh, um, but the instances various uh, books. Um, but which are not academic books, but he, he, he's saying that really, if you know a book inside out, that will teach you more than than uh, knowing lots about uh, a smattering of, of lots of books. Um, and the only book I think I ever read like that and did know inside out was um, uh, a book by another great historian, Richard Pears, uh, uh, called George the Third and the Politicians. Uh, and uh, and I, uh, which were his Ford lectures in uh, um, sometime in the fifties, um, and that made a great impression on me. And uh, and, and it, I, I certainly felt that was absolutely true. That knowing that book uh, helped me not merely to answer questions on that, but helped 
in so many other ways really it, uh, just t t taught me something else I don't know really, really, couldn't really find it really hard to say what but somehow the inside of somebody else's mind I suppose really. um, well I suppose you do but I, I, I try not to think I don't think of it quite like that I mean in the sense that uh, uh, a subject dictates really what uh, I mean I know uh, when I when I'm not long after I've started writing whether it's for the stage or for television uh, and uh, it's, there's something about it's something about distance I don't know I can't quite explain it but somehow there are things that uh, uh, you can get away with in the theatre which you can't get away with on television somehow it would seem stagey on television if you if the, the, it's so much more intimate and it's to do with the, just the distance between you and the people on the screen I mean the the um, the the monologues that I wrote for television talking heads um, they they were they, if I, I they although they were eventually done on stage they, they are much better I think on television because you're in such an intimate relationship with the characters um, and you can do um, well a lot more with a lot less really because you're so close to them and uh, whereas the theatre needs, uh, it seems to me, more bravura, really, and uh, um, and you can get away with more in a sense. You can, the jokes can be worse, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I don't really, but the, I get written to by candidates who think I ought to have. <laughs> uh, they they send me lists of questions, and it's just uh, I have. Uh, they just want me to do their homework for them, really. And I, I now, I just write back and say, uh, you must treat me like a dead author. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I say, and, and, and make it up, and nobody will know I didn't tell you that, you know. I just tell them to just pretend that I've written to them and tell them whatever they want to put down, because uh, otherwise, I just, you know, you, you spend your time just doing all that. But, uh, it's nice that they do it, and, uh, and I'm very glad that they are on the syllabus because um, it means you've got a younger audience, as it were, coming up. Um, and I always like—I don't know—a lot of people who do it seem to end up on Sainsbury's checkout because people often say, "Oh, I've done, I did you a tailor." <laughs> <laughs> and they're very surprised to find one still alive. I think. <laughs> um, I, I did in the sense that it always seemed to me that it was much much more like what university should have been than university was really that uh, uh, I uh, there was much more um, talk uh, and more um, as it were intellectual brawling really uh, on the Russian course than there was when I got to university uh, and and there was much more sheer enjoyment, really. Partly because it was the first time I'd been away from home for any length of time, uh, and uh, it, it was altogether uh, much more of an expansive period than, than when I was at university. I mean, the, really, the Russian had, the Russian itself had, had was incidental to it. Really, it was just. Uh, being in a group and and and, and not, not having any um, 
any worries about money or anything like that? Because you you were you were, you know you were all you uh, everything was found and you you had uh, your army pay and so you actually were better off than you were at university. Uh- a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, and, uh, and being in a place like Cambridge, it was wonderful, isn't it? So uh, I always regard that as more, more like university really than university ever was. I don't know. It's, it, you you can always write. I find out you can always write the first twenty minutes, and then some, you if you can get past that, then you can finish it. But if you can't get past that, and very often I can't, uh, that's that's really when it's crucial. Um, and uh, and however often you do it it seems to me that uh, you you know you, it's still there is this threshold you've got to cross uh, and I've, I've got scores of unfinished stuff uh, where I, I just you know couldn't get any further with it um, and I suppose in a way it, it would help if you had a a collaborator or somebody who, who could uh, you know you could talk to about it and, and get you through that period, but I've never found anybody who can do it. I mean, I, 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 once once I've got nearly to the end, Nicholas Heitner can do it, but uh, uh, it's it's quite difficult to to enter in somebody else's mind and, and uh, encourage them really. Well, I didn't have one certainly, <laughs> but I mean that may be me, not uh, not. Uh, um, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. It's quite. Uh, I'm sure you could. Uh, and looking back, you can see the people who were who were, who were probably gay, and you didn't realise it because it's 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 about the you you know with the knowledge afterwards. You you uh, you can, and you even see things that might have happened. You know, people who may have liked you, and and you didn't see it. And that which is which is uh, you know leaves you wild with all regret really, um, but um, I imagine it did it, it did go on, but it didn't really touch me. But uh, then that's been my life altogether. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no, I I, I um, my my school uh, almost symbolically while I was writing the play was gradually being demolished. Uh, it's on the northern edge of Leeds, um, and uh, you are just at the Ring Road, and you pass it if you're going out towards Otley on the A65, I think it is. 
uh, and um, and it was a really good building put up in uh, the the put up by the city architect in Leeds in 1930, and the city architect's department in Leeds was very um, uh, quite a, uh, revolutionary really at, at that time and. Uh, uh, and it was, uh, although it looked like a traditional building, I think it was a very, very good building architecturally. Um, and if it had been allowed to stand, I think in ten years' time would have been listed. But uh, they they pulled it down and, and built a, no a new school in front of it. Uh, and I uh, I thought I would go and look at it, but. Um, uh, they, it had asbestos in it, as I suppose most buildings of that age had. So I couldn't go and then and then uh, look north, which is a magazine program on on uh, BBC North. Asked me whether I would go, and so I was allowed to go into one bit of it. Um, and uh, and as always, when you go back, it, it seems smaller. Uh, uh, and less impressive but he, the thing that struck me about it was it had always been very um, smart when I was when I was there very shiny and all the, the, the it was I just remembered it as, as bright chestnut varnish and and, and, uh, and particularly um, uh, in my last term when I was often in the school after everybody gone home and it was the, you know the sun was catching it and it was uh, glowing with light and, uh, and it had, all that had gone and it was just a dull uh, nondescript building which uh, you couldn't um, I, you, you couldn't really defend in a way, it was so run down and the head, I met the headmaster and he was couldn't wait to get into the new school and I could understand that but uh, still I, I would like it to have uh, lasted until the play but anyway it didn't well, it, I, I should, uh, it's about the relationship between the teachers and the boys in the play. The Hector, the the, the charismatic schoolmaster, uh, gives lists boys. I'm, I'm I'm spoiling it for anybody who's going to see it. But anyway, he gives the boys lifts home on his motorbike and uh, and touches them up on the motorbike, uh, which is actually relates to my uh, I mean my own personal experience because I was once I used to hitchhike everywhere when I was 17 and was once uh, hitchhiking in Wales and was uh, given a lift through the Landbury's Pass, I think it is, on the back of a motorbike and, and I found the guy was uh, put his hand behind me, started touching me up as, he, as we were going along at this huge speed and I was absolutely petrified. <laughs> I'd be petrified of the sex and petrified of the bike and everything. Uh, and then uh, when he saw he found he wasn't getting anywhere he just dropped me at a quarry just a, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was furious because I'd been dropped at this place where it was impossible to get another lift anyway but much more than any, anything to do with the interference um, but anyway the boys the boys um, are very um, uh, funny about this, uh, this uh, or very uh, detached about it they aren't uh, in any way, um, I mean, one of them said, "Are we scarred for life?" Do you think the other said, "Well, I, we must hope so." <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, they they treat it very sceptically. Um, and then the the uh, one of the brightest of the pupils um, falls for in a slightly different way. The master 
the the young master who comes and who who as it were turns him on intellectually and who who he gets um, he finds that uh, he's fascinated by by uh, working in this way uh, and and turning answers on their heads and and by this whole examination technique and um, and is desperate to impress this uh, this uh, uh, master and so there's a kind of intellectual romance which uh, almost uh, becomes physical um, and uh, that I <coughs> when I wrote that I, I uh, was a bit nervous about it uh, and wasn't sure I, whether I was being uh, over romantic or fanciful um, and then I read um, George Steiner's latest book which is called Lessons of the Masters which is about uh, teaching and pupils uh, and uh, where he talks about um, about uh, and I think the, the he says that the transmission of knowledge is itself an erotic act uh, and I actually I asked his permission and and, and there put those words into Hector's mouth um, and uh, and so uh, his discussion of that really confirmed me into thinking that I was on the right lines, as it were, and that it just wasn't uh, me being romantic about it, really. Um, but uh, it's it's quite. I mean, he's quite a gay play in that sense. But uh, but it's it, not not a. Um, I don't. I don't think. Uh, um, I don't think these uh, this damages the boys, and we and the, we had a long the, the the rehearsals began with quite a lot of discussion, which I normally don't like. But the, in this play, you had to talk talk the boys through all the stuff which uh, in the play which they didn't understand, and they talked a lot about about sex and about their lives, and uh, their attitude is so far away from from my school days and from my attitude that you just felt uh, they knew far more than you did and you know, you know <laughs> there's nothing that you could tell them um, but um, but that that, that may also made the the uh, rehearsals interesting because they were like to begin with they were like school I mean we did there's a lot about Auden in the play and uh, they'd never heard of Auden most of them and uh, and so we just sat around and, and read various Auden poems and they talked about them. Two of them had never read poems at all, ever. Uh, and, uh, and so it, you did feel that you were altering their lives for the better, really. And, that, and uh, they, it, it was a... Uh, I mean, my experience previously is that, that when theatre is really good, it is a kind of teaching, and the best... Uh, directors are teachers, and so it was with this. Really, I, uh, I thought they, it was wonderful. Um, well, they're all good teachers in a dif in in, a, in different ways. Uh, Hector, the, I should explain. People who haven't seen the play. Hector, the uh, the unorthodox teacher. Uh, professes himself an enemy of education and uh, 
uh, and uh, things education and examinations particularly are, are uh, um, the death of education of true education uh, and teaches the boys in a very eccentric way makes them learn well, not eccentric now but wasn't once but he makes them learn things off by heart and, uh, and makes them do uh, what seem absurd exercises um, and then there's a, a, a much more factually based teacher called Mrs Lintock uh, who's really rather like the teacher I had at school uh, uh, who uh, is in a way admirable uh, too and then there is the, the, the young supply teacher who coaches the boys to get through the Oxford and Cambridge examination and he's uh, really very like the uses the techniques that, that I used uh, in order to 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 pass, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, I suppose I I've, I'm temperamentally sympathetic more to to Hector, the the, the charismatic teacher. Um, but uh, at the same time, if you're doing a play, you you there's part of you in everybody, really, and so you actually. Uh, you know, I, I've grown. I, I didn't like like the character at the start of rehearsals, the Irwin, the the, the thrusting young man. I, I do like him now. And the scene where he talks to the other teacher about the boys, and I just find that uh, unbearable. Really. Uh, um, no, I, Hector seemed to me the name of a. Slightly larger than life character, but we hadn't cast Richard Griffiths, who's considerably larger than life, uh, at that point. Um, but uh, no, I, I did. I'm, I, I vague slightly know it. Uh, I'll be retired now. But there was a don at uh, somebody at college with me called Michael Owen, who became a don at the University of Kent. But it isn't based on him. Um, but um, finding names that fit characters is a great, I find a great problem really. You, uh, um, I feel Hector is the right name, and I think Owen is just about. Um, Mrs. Lintot is again based on somebody I knew at Oxford. I'm not based, the name is based on somebody I knew at Oxford. Um, and, uh, but the once actors have, uh, as it were, bodied them forth, they then seem to fit much more than when they're on the page. You know, when you actually now, when I associate now with Francis Latour, for instance, I, uh, you know, it's, it, that seems to be her name to me. You share out yourself among the characters, I think. I mean, I can see, uh, I didn't particularly think about it when I'd, when I'd written it, but seeing it rehearsed, uh, uh, sometimes, uh, I hear my own voice when I was 17, 16, uh, and uh, uh, wince really. Uh, and there's one, there's one, there's a boy who's Jewish in the play uh, called Posner, uh, and he, and he's rather censorious, is this boy? Uh, and I just hear myself at 17, and 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 say, oh, and uh, but uh, it's uh, you. I mean, you reveal your oneself through the characters. Um, I, do, I don't think I speak in, as it were, my whole voice in the play. They, they all have a, a particular portion of my voice. Uh, about Posner, who, who, he, uh, who was the youngest um, boy in the class in the school, 
Um, the play had, an, had another origin besides the one that I talked about. Um, because Nicholas Heitner um, went to Manchester Grammar School and he told me that when he was a boy uh, he had a very good voice and um, uh, on, well before it broke and he uh, sang uh, with the Halle, he sang uh, with the choir with the Halle in, in Benjamin Britten under Barbarolli which I thought wonderfully romantic so I thought Big Barbarolli was a wonderful conductor but uh, and went to the Albert Hall to uh, sing with the Halle uh, and um, and he uh, rather liked Posner in the play he, he had such a good voice that uh, the uh, although he would normally be confined to Jewish prayers one of the uh, um, masters heard his voice and drafted him in to sing hymns in the Anglican service whereupon he was denounced by the by the master in Jewish prayers as, uh, as a renegade and uh, well, a heretic or whatever um, but anyway he told me this story and then he uh, did um, Michael Barclay's program uh, Private Passions which is a very good program on, on Radio 3 uh, in which people choose records and I, and I expected him to talk about this uh, but he didn't he didn't talk about it um, which I was rather disappointed by but he um, he played uh, one of the records he chose was uh, of Ella Fitzgerald singing uh, Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered uh, in which he sang the whole song with the lyrics very clear and they were the original Moss Hart lyrics um, and um, Moss Hart was gay but uh, and the lyrics are quite gay, but except that then they then, uh, as it were, bowderized them for the for the uh, Broadway production. But one of the verses in the in the in the uh, original Moss Hart version of which Bond Bewildered is, um, I sing to him, I cling, no, uh, uh, I cling, I I sing to him, I worship the trousers that cling to him, uh, and. Uh, and Posner in the play sings this because the boy who plays him has a very good voice he sings this song um, so all, all that was sort of woven into the play but uh, it was also that was also to do with the fact that when I was a boy uh, I was very late developing and uh, my voice didn't break till I was nearly 17 I think um, and uh, when I originally wrote the play, I said to Nicholas Eitner, "Could we?" It was really the the, 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 the Posner's character was rather like, much more like me than it is now, um, and it was a boy with a very, still with an unbroken voice. Uh, and um, after all the sad events at the end of the play, the final line of the play at that time was uh, Posner saying. But it's all—it's not all bad news. Uh, my voice is breaking. Uh, but anyway, that Nick said that you don't find boys with unbroken voices now uh, at 17. Um, but I—I uh, <laughs> I, I didn't entirely buy that because I—I know a boy. In, I think it's a genetic thing. And uh, uh, a friend of mine, his voice broke very late, and his son his voice broke really in exactly the same way so I don't think it's entirely true 
but he but Nick said quite rightly you be it would be possible to find a boy with an unbroken voice uh, so so I uh, I rewrote the part to to suit a boy who could sing but but whose voice had broken I don't I mean I actually don't know about women in that sense because I mean you'll have to tell your own stories as it, as it were but um, uh, I <laughs> but uh, it, I, um, the Francis Latour's part. Um, she's very down to earth and very factually based, and and uh, and seems to be uh, very uh, unprotesting, really, about about uh, the. The fact that the men rule the roost in the school, and then suddenly she she uh, erupts in the second act, and I'd not thought that this was funny. The scene in which she suddenly she suddenly turns to the audience and, and says, "I've not yet been allotted an inner voice in this play," <laughs> and and, uh, and, uh, and, it, and the people do laugh. You see, I hadn't really thought this was funny, but she makes it funny anyway. Um, and then she she said about. Uh, She's fed up of uh, history. To her, is just five centuries of male ineptitude, uh, and, uh, and the boys are deeply embarrassed by the feminism of it, and, and so are the masters. And she, it's, it's a very, she makes it a very funny scene, um, and uh, I hope that rings bells with with uh, women. But I, I mean, there are a lot of shouting when that happens. But I imagine it is just women who are doing the shouting in the audience. I hope so. Well, I can tell you, no, quite, <laughs> quite, quite shortly, really, because it wasn't my idea. <laughs> uh, uh, no, um, I sent. I'll tell you the history of the play. I, uh, I wrote, I wrote it and got two thirds of the way through it, um, and then couldn't really get any further. Uh, and th and this was last October, really. And then I, so I, I sort of cobbled an end together, uh, and then. Send it to Nicholas Heidner, with whom I'd worked before, uh, saying if he, you know, if he thought there was anything in it, maybe we could work on it. And thought that, uh, in my mind's eye, anyway, I thought, well, we probably, if if we could do it, and I could finish it, we'd do it uh, in the autumn. Uh, and either he had a, a slot available, I don't know, but he said, oh no, we could do it in spring. So I then had to really. Uh, get down to it and, and finish it. So uh, uh, I then um, f finished off a version, and and we did what we'd done with um, we did with George the Third, and also with the Lady in the Van. We we just got to any actors who were around at the National Theatre, and they came in and read, uh, did a trial reading, just for us to know what the shape of the text was and where it was too long, which was enormously too long it was. Um, and then I did another version, and and then we cut that down, and we had a fairly manageable text to to go into rehearsal with, which rehearsal started at the end of March. Um, now uh, Nicholas Heitner, uh, from previous experience, he likes to keep things a bit up his sleeve. What he's going to do. And uh, I knew he had plans for for a video and so on, but I didn't I didn't.
question him closely about it because I, I seemed to me he taken a risk with the play and, and so I had to take an equivalent risk in letting him do what he wanted to do because he, he uh, and also he'd always, we'd always got on before and we'd al I'd always approved of what he did. So uh, anyway, I just knew there were going to be these videos, but I didn't see how they fitted in, or I couldn't understand quite how. And it all seemed very, um, the changes of scenery and setting seemed very clumsy as we were rehearsing them, but uh, I didn't vo voice this at all. And, but uh, anyway, uh, at the end of the, um, the, uh, well, really, I think we only had two more weeks rehearsal to do. Um, he took the boys off to a school in uh, uh, Kidbrook, it was, in uh, in South London, and they filmed the scenes in the school. And then I went... Uh, I, I, I had written... Uh, I should say I had written the opening scene of the second act, which is uh, uh, part of a history television programme. So it's... Uh, uh, I, I knew there was going to be some sort of video filming. Then that that I had uh, that was my idea. So maybe Nick got it, his idea extended it from that. But anyway, I went off to Revo Abbey and and was there for the filming of the of that scene. And then uh, he had a showing at rehearsal of all the stuff that they'd done in the school. And uh, and the boys all liked it very, but they were relentless at piss taking. They actually never. They were right from the first day. They never gave any mercy at all. They were absolutely. I mean, it's wonderful because because it made, made you feel like a human being again. Really, uh, I mean, they didn't treat you in any way uh, with no uh, respect whatsoever. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, they uh, we saw these and. Um, um, after they were over, they all agreed how good they were, and one of the boys said, yeah, it's, it's going to be the best thing in the play, and you didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, but anyway, uh, I, should, uh, I should explain to people that, that, that it's quite difficult to imagine, but there's a very large video screen above the action, and uh, in the scene changing, uh, there's, there's a lot going off on the screen, and you... Uh, automatically watch watch the screen, so you don't actually take much notice of what's going on. And often, what what's going on on the screen is rather interesting to watch anyway. So um, and and further forwards the action a bit as well. So it's really to his credit entirely, really the, the, all that. Um, and uh, and I uh, I do feel people assume it's just modesty, um, saying you know that it's not. Uh, um, it shouldn't go to my credit, but it's it is absolutely true. It is a cooperative enterprise, and uh, and and even well, you know, with the with the it, it's been a exceptionally um, happy play to do. Uh, I mean, I've had a wonderful time doing it, and so has Nicholas Heitner, uh, and it somehow spills over onto the stage. I think really. Oh yes. Uh, what happened was, um, and it's, it's quite interesting, it's quite, uh, it's, it's uh, art, life imitating art really. Uh, one of the themes of the play <coughs> of, of, uh, is that, um, uh, of the unexpectedness of things. I mean one of the boys, um, who the other boys all think is thick, um, 
Fran uh, Mrs. Lintock, Francis Latour, says to him, "Now, Rog, uh, um, tell me what uh, what do you think history is?" Uh, and uh, he said, "He said I, I think it's just one fucking thing after another." <laughs> uh, and uh, she then follows his up saying, oh, and why do you want to come to Christchurch? <laughs> but anyway, um, but it, uh, and, and this is, uh, actually, though, I, I'll digress, but uh, that was actually said slightly differently by Herbert Butterfield, who was the Regis Professor at Cambridge in the 40s, and uh, which, uh, uh, in, uh, um, he was the smart historian to read at that time, and I remember reading him for, for the Cambridge examination. But he said, uh, I think history is just one bloody thing after another. I mean, the distance between the bloody and the fucking is, I suppose, what's happened to public discourse uh, over the, <laughs> the time in between. But anyway, um, one of the themes is the unexpectedness of, of things and, and, uh, that, and how it... Uh, history rattles over the points and um, anyway we, we had the final um, uh, just where the boys did a warm up and and, uh, and we had the final notes yesterday afternoon uh, and um, there was no sense although it was the first night there was no sense of uh, it being a particularly difficult hurdle because We'd had a, a week's previews, and the audiences had all been very good, and, and uh, nobody was nervous. And uh, though this is dangerous, always to say to the critics because they then take it amiss. But they couldn't really affect the outcome because it had been booked out, and, and so whatever they said, it, it wouldn't affect the business. Uh, so the atmosphere was very, very relaxed, and uh, and uh, and so Nicholas Eitner was giving notes to the boys and just. It was a pains to say, you know, there's no reason to worry. Uh, just do your best, and, and everything will be fine. And, and virtually said, nothing can go wrong. Uh, and then we left left the theatre, and, uh, and the then what happens then is that uh, the people come in, and, and if there's any dirt, they clean it away, or uh, and and then the theatre is, as it were, closed down until half an hour before the performance um, and then uh, somebody happened just to come in uh, during this time and found the stage was four inches deep in water and the, there'd been a, either a short circuit or somewhere up in the electrics and it had turned the sprinklers on so the whole place was awash um, and uh, so the fr first of all the fire brigade came to make sure the fire was out, um, uh, and, and uh, it, the, the National Theatre backstage is, is very difficult to find your way about, and I found a fully a fireman in all his rig miles away from the Littleton Theatre saying, can you tell me where this theatre is? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but um, anyway, then they, they were very pessimistic about whether we could do a performance at all. Um, but eventually they said the fire was out, and then anybody who was available in the theatre was Galvin, was brought to the stage and, and given a mop and, and, and the, the stage was um, dried and uh, so the curtain went up a, uh, an hour after it should have done 
but the audience had been given uh, vouchers and they had a drink in the <laughs> so maybe the the good reviews are because the audience were all pissed. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>